Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 39 in our series for 2022, and today's date is Friday, October the 28th. First, I'll be talking to the founder and CEO of Macquarie Telecom Group, David Tudhope, about cybersecurity challenges. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest unemployment figures. But now let's talk to David Tudhope. David, there's been all sorts of issues about cybersecurity since the Optus hack. What's your view about it? What should companies be doing? Well, I've got no view on the Optus one because uh, nothing is publicly known about what occurred there. In terms of cybersecurity more broadly, unrelated to Optus, yeah, it's a very important part of our business, Leon. It's something that we uh, provide as a service to our government and corporate clients, and we invest a large amount of money into making that effective managed service. And I think, you know, any time there's a cybersecurity uh, issue that becomes public, I think people naturally think about it more and uh, invest more. Is it becoming more of a problem? Well, cybersecurity generally, I think, is is has been a very large issue for a long time and it's definitely getting becoming more challenging. And uh, cyber criminals are becoming more prevalent and smarter as are state-sponsored cyber attacks as well in the government world. How well prepared are government agencies? Well, they've actually done very well. The federal government agencies are particularly sophisticated and you know, we're, uh, I guess, continue to, they continue to invest significantly amounts of money in cybersecurity and I think that they and probably the financial services, particularly the large banks, insurance companies, tend to invest a lot in uh, cybersecurity and are well prepared. And part of the part of the magic, uh, Leon, is I think that the government has set minimum standards for cybersecurity and that's, I think, one of the key success. The analogy I'd give is a lot like the, uh, the world of uh, fire insurance. <clears throat> I think there was a period where there were no standards on uh, what was acceptable by way of fire prevention and fire response. And it was very difficult for businesses to know how to protect their buildings. And then in the, in 100 years ago, they brought in minimum standards for buildings. And I think in terms of fire protection and sprinkler systems and water hoses and the like and fire hydrants and all these things that we take for granted weren't, weren't a part of the of things But prior to that. And I think similar to cybersecurity, what you have in federal government is you have minimum standards that mean that does reduce, reduce prevents, prevents and, and reduces the impact. We need, to, we need to have the same thing for corporate sector and government more broadly. But the, the big issue is can this stuff can compromise the information people store? I completely agree with you. That is the big issue is can you restore, can you recover? If you can do that, then you don't have to pay the criminals their, uh, their blackmail. So how do you do that? Well, I think the key is to, to, to uh, store your information 
in a separate place from your primary, which is obvious, but that often is not uh, at the time because quite often the provider of the primary services, oh, just draw it with me. We'll just we'll just open up open up a separate separate section. I mean, clearly part of it is not only storing a separate separate place, but also a separate uh, type of cloud. And then the second of all is actually practicing to restore and saying, look, if I have the data there, do I have all the data I need to restore or just some of the data? So, uh, I mean, if it's just some of the data, you, you can't get all the hmm. issue. If you only have some of the data, you can't restore. That's right. How can agencies and governments and businesses protect themselves from that? Well, I think, uh, we just, I guess, in terms of restoring, it's about storing the, storing the second copy of your key data and all the data that enables that data to work. Uh, in, a, in a separate cloud, separate from the primary cloud, ideally in a separate location, and then practicing the idea of restoring based off that data. But can systems be restored? Yes, of course. Right. Combating cyber threats, uh, you often say it's uh, like um, combating vermin. I haven't used that expression. Others might have. Um, I think combating cyber threats, I think, is something that can be done. It just needs good preparation and it needs talented people and it needs eternal vigilance. And uh, look, the analogy I think, Leon, that I think really captures not captures the maybe the gap between the way some people see it and where it needs to be is it's a bit like a, I use the analogy of a mousetrap people tend to be very focused on what kind of mousetrap to buy very focused on whether they you know, employ someone to deploy them and you know, you, which, which which pest control company to use and then they kind of sit and forget you know they're, they're busy lives busy businesses they just kind of move on and they wonder why wind forward some months maybe even some years later, the problem of mice and rats and ha have returned. And the issue is you need to constantly tune your, your, your placement of the mousetraps, uh, the cheese you use. You have to take away the dead mice. No, no healthy mice is going to walk into the same trap with a dead mice sitting in it. And it's that eternal vigilance, you know, as the Americans say, the block and tackling is key to success rather than the initial purchase and the initial deployment, which tends to be where the, the money and the energy goes. So that means constant vigilance. Yes, it means, it means constantly doing the things you did initially over and over again, swapping, you know, putting in fresh cheese, taking out the old cheese, you know, moving the mousetraps for a different location. These are the things that are key. And what that translates to, back to the world of cybersecurity, is the importance criticality of security operations as a and that's something you can do yourself in in-house as a company uh, you, or as an individual or you can let a managed service provider do that now we provide managed services for security so do many other companies and it's the managed service provider or doing it internally it's the security operations is where the action's at in my view assuming you buy a a quality industrial strength firewall and other kinds of cybersecurity software and you install it correctly, assume you do all that, the action is at the ongoing management of the security operations. But I mean, it's part of that uh, maintenance and continuing function of the uh, cybersecurity operations. You would need to have staff, key staff analysts, experts on the field employed in your company to do that. You do. And it's very difficult to attract them. Um, they're looking for career paths. They're looking for new challenges. And I think that's, that is why both corporate and government struggles to hire and retain talented staff in that cyberspace because, not just because of the, 
current imbalance between uh, supply and demand of labour. But in this particular specialisation, they're in such high demand that it is very difficult to retain them. And there's actually a shortage at the moment. Would that be right? Yes, that's accelerating. As more companies seek to invest in cybersecurity teams and only, only a modest number of new people enter the industry, the, the supply and demand imbalance is actually becoming larger. So what could be done to address it? I think there's a, a number of things that take some years. I mean, clearly bringing up new cybersecurity professionals and training and education at universities or maybe a diploma through the TAFE system, I think would, make, would, would be critical elements. I think there's a role for government and corporates in terms of bringing as graduates then through the system, train them up, but that all takes time. And the key in the absence of that is for people to work out for their business um, what their priorities are and whether they can do it themselves, whether they need to think about using a managed security provider. It, it occurs to me that I'm wondering whether an outfit like Macquarie Telecom can run boot camps for companies to address this. Yes. I mean, training is a, is a critical part of it. I think awareness training is very important. A lot of programs, mostly online these days, where people put their company's staff through uh, cybersecurity awareness type training, basic education, so the users uh, are more alive to how they can minimise the risk of a cybersecurity attack. And uh, that is, um, I think, very important. It's also very important to vet the people you have working for your business to make sure that they are who you think they are. And just, in, just as before the, the online world came along, people used to sort of say it's very important to you know, do some basic checks on your staff's bona fides and it might be a criminal history. I think it's still very true in the online world as well. So all these things are things a company can do themselves and there's lots of online training tools. You don't need people in classrooms anymore. You can just put staff through that and you can track whether they actually do the program or not. And it's a good thing to do. Everyone does it, we do it, but there are many companies who, who don't yet do that. How do you reach out to those companies that don't do it? Oh, I think it, it, that's where I think it probably comes back to our, our earlier conversation, Leon, where the, there is a value, a real value, in having minimum standards for cybersecurity in uh, critical industries, of course, uh, ones that are most important to the economy, but also I think in other sectors as well. And I think as time goes on, there'll be a need for government to recognise that just like with you know, fire standards, where things were put in place there to have minimum, minimum standards for fire protection, they'll be putting in place minimum standards for uh, cybersecurity protection at lots of different levels, from larger corporates through to consumer electronics. There has to be, I think, a government involvement here. It's not about red tape. It's actually about protecting the economy and protecting individuals, individuals and businesses' data. And that government protection would actually have to specify which sectors as well, like financial services? Well, as I mentioned earlier, financial services is one of the most, one of the more sophisticated ones. So um, I think that APRA has already done some things in that space. More can be done, of course. But I think it's the broader economy uh, and critical infrastructure generally, which means power and water and all these type of sectors, uh, are the ones where they need a minimum standard that they can measure themselves against. Well, David, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure, Leo. Nice to speak with you. And now let's talk to Indeed Economist, Callum Pickering. Well, Callum, the, uh, uh, the unemployment figures came out at 3.5%, but only 900 jobs were created. I mean, what's your view about that? Yeah, it was a, a rather uneventful uh, labour force survey, and that's definitely something we haven't uh, said much in, in recent years. Um, as you said, in, employment was little changed in September, up just 900 
people, uh, which fell well short of market expectations of a, a 25,000 person gain. Um, and it left the unemployment rate unchanged at 3.5%, which is obviously still a very good number. You know, we've very rarely seen an unemployment rate that low over the past half century, but it's still a little bit disappointing given um, there was that expectation that the labour market would continue to tighten. What's interesting is that there really hasn't been much employment growth over the past three months, and that suggests that maybe labour market momentum has has slowed over the past quarter, which is something we thought would happen at some point, but it's maybe happened a little bit earlier than we'd anticipated. Uh, would suggest employment numbers have, might have peaked. Would that be right? Well, if, if it hasn't peaked, it's, it's certainly very near its peak. Um, it's an interesting dynamic now, right now because there are so many jobs available nationwide. Job vacancies are about 480,000, which is more than double what we had before the pandemic began. But it doesn't seem to be translating into higher employment anymore. And what that indicates to me is that recruitment has become increasingly difficult. And so while there are jobs available across every industry, uh, good jobs, high paying jobs, uh, they don't necessarily match up with the people who aren't currently in the workforce. And so we're struggling to, to pull people into jobs, um, and that could be people who are currently unemployed or, or people who aren't necessarily looking for, for jobs that regularly, but we're struggling to pull them into, into the labour force. And so we're not necessarily seeing the gains in employment that you would normally anticipate given how many job vacancies there are nationwide. So the numbers were very stable. I mean, the participation rate was unchanged, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, almost everything was unchanged. Um, I mentioned the unemployment rate and, and employment just before. The participation rate was unchanged at 66.6%. Uh, again, a very strong number by historical standards. Uh, hours worked were also unchanged. Um, so it was a real theme throughout the, the Labor Force survey that just all the major metrics that we tend to focus on just didn't do anything in September. They just were the same as they were in August. Can you see the labour market deteriorating significantly in the near term? In the near term, no. And, and the reason for that is simply because there are so many jobs available. In the current job market, if someone was to lose their job, be made redundant from a business that was struggling, I think they could reasonably expect to find another job elsewhere because we know that employers across the country are desperate to find workers. And, and when, that's a situ when that is the situation, I think it becomes very difficult to envision the, the labour market deteriorating significantly in the near term. Now, when we think 12 months down the track, two years down the track, I think that becomes a, a very different ball game. The, the higher rates, the higher interest rates that we are seeing, the high inflation that we are seeing will continue to weigh on households and, and businesses across the country. And at some point, the labour market is going to begin to cool. But I certainly wouldn't wouldn't anticipate that happening over the next six months. Right. So employers, there's no employers aren't showing any signs of holding off on their hiring with uh, inflation and interest rates. Not at all. Uh, if businesses were genuinely concerned about rising interest rates and high inflation, they would have pulled back on the job ads um, that we're seeing online. And that simply isn't the case. Um, job ads are as high as they've ever been. Job vacancies are only slightly below their, their peak earlier this year. Very healthy numbers by historical standards. And, and normally we would say that that should translate into a much tighter labour market going forward. But clearly there is some difficulty filling a lot of these roles at the moment, which is limiting the employment gains that we are seeing. That would put a lot of bargaining power in the hands of the job seekers. Yeah, it's, it's a very favourable 
job market for job seekers right now. Um, they're in a very good position uh, to bargain for, for higher wages or better benefits. Um, they can sort of pick and choose where and how they want to work uh, in terms of you know location or, or working from home. Uh, so it's it's still a great market at the moment if you are a job seeker that maybe wants to be paid a little bit more. Uh, it would certainly be uh, worth dipping your, your toes in the water and, and seeing what sort of opportunities are out there because I think a lot of job seekers would be surprised um, by just how desperate a lot of employers are to, to get new staff in the door. So job seekers basically have more choice in and where and how they work. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Um, you know, right now there is about one vacancy, one job vacancy for every person who is unemployed. And to put that into perspective, before the pandemic began, there was three unemployed people for every job vacancy across the country. So the dynamics in the labour market have just fundamentally shifted in a way that we really haven't seen before. And it's created a huge imbalance between the demand and supply of labour, which has been hugely beneficial for job seekers and, and, and people who are out there looking for, for a new job. And so I think it ma would make a lot of sense in the current environment to try and take advantage of that where you can, particularly if you've been in a job where maybe wage growth has been weak for a number of years or you've had wage freezes throughout the pandemic. You can really bump up your wages significantly if you, you look at what's out there in the market right now because you will find that businesses are very... Uh, keen and, and really quite desperate to, to find suitable and, and talented staff. What does this mean from a perspective of monetary policy with the, with the Reserve Bank? Well, certainly from monetary um, policy, the, the jobs report confirms that the Australian labour market is still very healthy. But it does indicate that that momentum that we saw throughout the first half of the year is, has definitely slowed. You know, we're not seeing the gains that we, we saw earlier this year. I think the Reserve Bank is likely to continue to hike rates in the near term. I expect a 25 basis point increase when they meet on Melbourne Cup Day and then another 25 basis points when they meet December. I would then anticipate that they take a, a bit of a pause, a little bit of a break in the first quarter of next year. And they'll do that so that they can assess the impact that the rate rises this year have had on the Australian economy. They've been moving so fast, raising rates so quickly this year that it's been very difficult to to really get a good sense of what impact those rate rises have had on the economy thus far. Uh, is it doing what the RBA wants it to do? Um, and, and do they need to sort of change tack with regards to, to policy going forward? Um, so I think it is likely that they will uh, stop raising rates in the, in the first quarter of next year, work out whether they need to do more. And, you know, depending on how the economy evolves, they'll sort of make that decision after the first quarter of next year. Although uh, Bullock uh, this week was saying we can expect the Reserve Bank to keep raising rates next year. Well, it is likely at this point that they will continue to raise rates. But what I'm saying is that I think there will be a period where they stop, even if it is just for three months, to assess what the situation looks like, how the economy is evolving and what sort of monetary response is, is required. The market right now is pricing in a cash rate of about 4% by mid-year. Uh, mid-next year, which would represent 140 basis points above where we currently are. So the market certainly thinks that the RBA is going to hike pretty aggressively next year. I think most economists are a little bit more cautious around what the RBA will do. But on the balance of probabilities, yes, I, I do think they will hike again next year, albeit at nowhere near the same pace that we've seen over the course of this year. That's regardless of whether the Fed is uh, increasing rates over there. The US. Yeah, the, the Fed certainly complicates things. They've been very aggressive, more aggressive than the RBA has, and, and it's put downward pressure on the Australian dollar. 
And that's been problematic because a strong Australian dollar is one of the factors that would put downward pressure on inflation. A, a lot of the inflation that has been generated across the, the country right now has been imported from abroad. And when the Australian dollar deteriorates, as it has against the US dollar, that actually makes our import prices higher, which makes inflation higher. Um, so the, the fact that the Federal Reserve has been so aggressive has perhaps created justification for... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on the RBA to continue to raise rates as well. They might have to do more on their end in order to offset the impact that the Federal Reserve is having on the Australian dollar and inflation um, domestically. But indeed, that's having an impact on our inflation. Well, that's right, yeah. I mean, you think about all the different ways in which monetary policy impacts inflation. One of the biggest ones is via the exchange rate, and, and it's always been that way. Now, in a normal situation, if the Reserve Bank was uh, hiking rates as aggressively as they have, you would expect the Australian dollar to uh, appreciate against its major trading partners, and that would put downward pressure on inflation. The problem in the current scenario is that every major central bank is hiking rates aggressively. And so the best that the RBA can do is, is really just to try and hold the Australian dollar uh, steady. And even they haven't really even achieved that against the, the US dollar because of how aggressive the, the Federal Reserve has been. So it's actually increased our import prices. It's actually put upward pressure on inflation. And with that being the case, that would justify the RBA being even a little bit more aggressive because they're not getting any inflation relief by the Australian dollar, which means that they really have to put the clamps on domestic demand from households and businesses as a way to control inflation. So that'll certainly be an interesting dynamic that's going to evolve um, over the course of, of next year. It'll be interesting to see just how aggressive the Federal Reserve is and whether the Reserve Bank thinks that they need to match that um, in order to keep inflation under control. Well, Callum, that's all fascinating and thank you very much for your time. And thank you, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, China's gross domestic product grew well below target in the third quarter intensifying falls in Chinese stocks as investors worried about the longer-term outlook for the world's second-largest economy. GDP expanded 3.9% year-on-year, better than the forecast of 3.3% from analysts polled by Bloomberg, but still short of China's full-year target of 5.5%, which is already its lowest in three decades. The release of data on Monday, delayed from last Tuesday, comes after China's President Xi Jinping extended his rule for an unprecedented third term and tightened his grip on political power of the Communist Party's 20th Congress last week. China is grappling with a property crisis and strict zero-COVID controls and lockdowns, which have largely curtailed the spread of the virus, 
but also crippled consumer activity. The data release added to pessimism in Chinese equities after investors were disappointed that the party congress did not send more positive signals for the economy. And Australia's Labor government revealed its first budget, a combination of delivering on election promises, billion-dollar spending cuts and warnings of widening deficits ahead. The Labor government is pouring billions of dollars into new projects to boost renewable energy and transition away from fossil fuels, in line with their election promises. Everything from modernised electricity transmission to electric vehicle charging stations and new funding for critical minerals research. Some of the funding has yet to be distributed and other projects are still a while away from being completed, but it is a big signal by the government that it is not backing away from its commitment to combating climate change. The 2022 budget has allocated hundreds of millions of dollars towards protecting Australia's threatened species, including the iconic koala, as well as $100 million for urgent action for the Great Barrier Reef, which has experienced multiple bleaching events in recent years. It's a good time to be a fish in Australia. In this budget, the Labor government has invested heavily in childcare and paid parental leave, two areas which gender equality activists have said will help improve women's participation in the workforce. Minister for Women Katie Gallagher has also planned millions of dollars in additional funding to help end violence against women and children. Australia has ramped up its foreign aid spending in its October budget with a particular focus for the Pacific and Southeast Asia, which Foreign Minister Penny Wong said would increase Australia's influence in the region. Canberra will create a military training school in the Pacific, increase aerial surveillance over the region and boost its infrastructure assistance. Australia's home buyers might be in luck for the first time in a long while. In an attempt to solve house prices, the Labor government announced a new accord with state governments to build one million new homes in accessible locations beginning in 2024. There are about $28 billion of cuts and delayed spending in Chalmers' budget, and a lot of that comes from cancelled or suspended infrastructure projects. The Labor government has been highly critical of former Prime Minister Scott Morrison's administration for announcing publicly funded infrastructure projects for political purposes, and these cuts reflect that. Labor has its own infrastructure priorities, which are funded in this budget, including $2.2 billion for Melbourne's suburban rail loop. Labor promised to cut back on the government's use of contractors for publicly funded projects, and they have delivered in spades. The government has slashed $3.6 billion from expenses by cutting back on contractors, advertising travel and legal expenses. All the money has gone into paying for their election promises. And Labor's first federal budget forecast debt and deficit will be worse than expected. Energy prices are about to skyrocket. Soaring commodity prices and a booming job market have delivered the government an extra $141 billion in revenue in a boost that Treasury says is unlikely to be repeated. A crackdown on tax avoidance, higher levies on off-market share buybacks and a one-off increase in skilled migration are among the new measures the Albanese government expects will net $9.4 billion over the next four years. However, the budget also forecasts spending on the National Disability Insurance Scheme could hit $102 billion by June 2033 and eclipse the age pension as the government's most expensive federal government social program. In addition, annual interest payments are tipped to hit $70.5 billion in the next decade, about $30.5 billion higher than forecast just seven months ago. The structural deficit is forecast to remain at about $50 billion over the decade. It is not an insurmountable issue. It works out to about 2% of gross domestic product, but it shows the government will have to eventually make some very tough decision on spending, tax and economic reform. It has deferred the required big cuts until next year to buy time to soften up the public for drastic change. In Labor's first budget, which Treasurer Jim Chalmers says begins the hard yards of budget measures, Labor took to the election, such as cheaper childcare and prescription medicines. Compounding the cost of living crisis, interest rates are now assumed to peak sooner and higher than forecast in the last budget update in April, with a cash rate now 2.6%, expected to reach 3.35% by the middle of next year. 
Many indebted households will come under greater pressure, the budget says. In more bad news, the budget forecast power prices will soar by 20% this year and a further 30% in 2023-24 for a compounded increase of 56%. Due to their immediate impact and their flow-on effect through the economy, high energy prices will contribute 0.75 percentage points to inflation this financial year and one point next year. Dr Chalmers gave notice that the government was planning a broad suite of regulatory interventions in the energy market. Dr Chalmers said to offer households extra cost of living relief now would only add to inflation, which the budget forecast will average 5.75% this financial year and 3.5% next year before dropping back to 2.5% in 2024-25 within the Reserve Bank of Australia's target band. The immediate focus of the strategy is to ensure that fiscal policy avoids adding to inflationary pressures in the economy and beginning budget repair the budget papers say. Over time, the focus will shift to achieving measured improvements in the budgeted position to stabilise and then reduce gross debt as a share of GDP. The repair job will come amid a softening economy, with growth predicted to fall from 3.25% this year to 1.5% in 2023-24, before recovering slightly to 2.25% the year after. Dr Chalmers did not rule out breaking promises by implementing structural measures to fix the budget before seeking a mandate at the next election. We're prepared to make difficult decisions in difficult times, he said. Our responsibility is to put the budget on a more sustainable footing. I don't think that work can wait for another three or four budgets. Australians know there are hard days to come and hard decisions to accompany them. In forecasts, which will rekindle discussions about the affordability of the stage three tax cuts and tax concessions on super trusts and housing, as well as the spiralling costs of the National Disability Insurance Scheme. The budget predicts debt and deficit to worsen dramatically over the decade without intervention. The deficit is forecast to shrink this year from the $78 billion predicted in the April pre-election fiscal update to just $36.9 billion due to a revenue boom driven by soaring commodity prices and low unemployment. But owing to the structural pressures on the budget and highly conservative commodity price forecasts in future years, the deficit begins to grow again. By 2032-33, the deficit based on the current trajectory is estimated to be 1.9% GDP, a significant deterioration from the 0.7% GDP forecast in the April update. Interest payments, which will be $76 billion over forward estimates and $70 billion a year by 2032-33. The NDIS, which will cost $166 billion over the next four years, reach $50 billion a year by 2025-26, and if it continues to grow at its current rate, will cost $102 billion a year in a decade, and more realistic productivity assumptions, which Labor introduced to underpin budget assumptions. And an extra 20,000 university places will also be created over the next two years for students from disadvantaged backgrounds looking to study in an area of skills shortage. The government will also spend $203.7 million on student wellbeing, including school mental health support and social activities. It has also created the Startup Year program, providing 2,000 income contingent loans a year to allow eligible students to participate in a university-based accelerator program in a bid to foster the next generation of Australian entrepreneurs. The government has poured billions into supporting families. That includes $531.6 million over the next four years to expand the Commonwealth Paid Parental Leave Program from 18 to 26 weeks, but the full six subsidised months won't be available to new parents until 2026. The government is also spending $4.6 billion to increase childcare subsidy rates for all families with annual incomes below $530,000, up to a maximum of 90%. And multinational corporations will pay an extra $1 billion in tax 
under a new clampdown on excessive deductions and profit shifting to lower taxing countries, as the government also seeks to raise $3.7 billion more by targeting tax dodging individuals and businesses. Tuesday night's budget implemented Labor's pledge to crack down on tactics used by global corporations to minimise their tax bills and extended various Australian tax office compliance programs. And Coles Group has posted a rise of just 1.3% in first quarter sales of the 2023 financial year to 9.89 billion, underpinned by its supermarkets where inflation of fresh food and dry goods continued to surge, heaping more pressure on household budgets. The station's second biggest grocery chain said on Wednesday the first quarter food inflation climbed 7.1%, boosting prices paid by consumers, up significantly 4.3% on the June quarter. Fresh food inflation continued to be driven by bakery, reflecting higher wheat prices, and fresh produce, particularly in fruits such as berries and bananas, Cole said. Inflation, excluding tobacco and fresh food, rose 6.7% for the first quarter. Raw material, commodity shipping and fuel costs remain the key drivers of supplier input cost requests received, Cole said. And higher pension and social service payments will add $33 billion to government spending over the next four years in another pressure point for the federal budget, as Treasury Jim Chalmers warns of structural problems that will keep the nation's finances in deficit. A tougher outlook for the economy is a key factor in the surrounding increase because the government is assuming more people will need assistance, with job seeker payments to the unemployed making up one-third of the surge. But the increase in social service outlays cannot be avoided because the age pension, job seeker and most other forms of income support are indexed to consumer prices and must rise to help recipients to keep up with household costs. And the latest inflation data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics shows annual inflation was 7.3% for the September quarter, the highest since June 1990. And home prices could drop by 20% from the peak in just over two years if pessimism takes hold of the property market, according to an internal assessment by the Reserve Bank of Australia. The fallout from this downside housing price scenario would hit both broader consumer consumption and the hard-pressed building industry, with real estate agents already seeing big shifts on the ground. Bank documents released under Freedom of Information showed its concerns about recent weakness in housing prices, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, and the effect this is having on dwelling investment. The documents showed that national housing prices unexpectedly fell in the June quarter, reflecting declines in the two major capitals as auction volumes and clearance rates in these cities dropped. The bank is assuming that price falls in Sydney and Melbourne continue over the second half of this year, with its central case scenario for prices in those cities expected to be off by around 1.5% per month. It said that at the same time, price growth has slowed in other capital cities and regional areas, and this is expected to continue into next year, and prices in those markets would also drop. And Australia has joined the Global Methane Pledge, becoming one of the last major developed economies to sign on to an effort to reduce emissions of the potent greasehouse gas by 30% from 2020 levels by the end of this decade. Announcing the decision to sign the Methane Pledge on Sunday, Climate and Energy Minister Chris Bowen said meeting the 2030 target could help avoid two centigrade of warming across the planet. Canberra's participation is the latest push by Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's Labor government to improve the nation's climate standing on the world stage. In September, the government passed a law requiring a 43% cut in greenhouse gas emissions from 2005 levels by 2030 and setting a net zero goal by 2050, its first binding emissions reduction target. Cutting methane releases in Australia could prove tricky if farmers or miners balk at the changes needed to meet the agreement's goals. Officials in New Zealand, the world's largest dairy exporter, said in October its farmers will have to start paying a levy on agricultural emissions by 2025, a move Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern said would be a world first. The cheapest way for Australia to significantly reduce emissions of the gas and to reduce leaks from coal mines, according to a recent analysis from energy think tank Ember. 
The pit spewed more than 1 million metric tonnes of methane each year, contributing nearly a quarter of the country's emissions of the gas, the group said in its analysis. And Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews said voters would decide if they want a publicly funded power company to generate electricity, after former Premier Jeff Kennett lambasted him for quickly sending Victoria broke and said his energy plan was heartbreaking. Last week, Andrews announced a re-elected Labor government would revive the State Electricity Commission and spend $1 billion to create 4.5 gigawatts of renewable energy, about 30% of the state's electricity. Victoria would have a 51% stake in the revived commission and its wind and solar projects. Andrews said the superannuation industry was a preferred investor in the remaining share. Kennett, who carved up and sold off the commission during the 1990s, tweeted on Saturday that Andrews was quickly sending Victoria broke and must be stopped. But Andrews said on Sunday he believed energy was an essential, not a business, and it had been a mistake for the Kennett government to sell off the Commission's assets. He said his energy plan would benefit Victorians rather than private companies, which he said had made $23 billion in profit since privatisation. Labor would also, if re-elected, accelerate its target to cut emissions by up to 80% of 2005 levels by 2035 and net zero by 2045, five years earlier than planned. Now, Australian consumers would rather cut back on eating, out, smoking, drinking and even groceries instead of cancelling their digital media subscriptions, according to new research by Deloitte. The firm's survey of 2,000 Australians found spending on digital services jumped to an average of $62 in 2022, up from $55 last year, and the average number of digital subscriptions per household increased to 3.1 this year, up from last year's 2.3. But churn also remained high, with more than 30% of respondents cancelling one or more services in the past six months. Now, billionaire Gina Reinhardt's Hancock Prospecting has pulled its $15 million sponsorship from Netball Australia. It comes after some Diamonds players objected to the possibility of branding being splashed across their uniforms. Indigenous player Donald Wallen, in particular, was uncomfortable considering Reinhardt's father, Lang Hancock, made terrible comments about sterilising Indigenous peoples in an 80s documentary. After pulling the funding, Hancock Prospecting's statement was fairly strongly worded. It said the sponsorship would have generously boosted the wages of players and that it was unnecessary for sport to be used for social or political causes. And Qantas owned Jetstar scrapped almost 1 in 10 domestic flights in September, a horror month for the carrier during which only 5 of its 11 aircraft were operable. Official data released on Monday showed the airline axed 626 flights or 9.5% of services in September. Jetstar's performance was significantly poorer on the most popular routes, including Brisbane to Sydney, where 21% of flights were axed. The Bureau of Infrastructure, Transport and Regional Economics data, which does not capture international data, showed 17.6% of Jetstar's Brisbane to Melbourne flights were cancelled, along with 17.1% of Melbourne to Sydney services in the month. In comparison, Qantas had an overall cancellation rate of 2.5%, with several planes grounded. Jetstar blamed bird strikes, lightning strikes and runway drippery. Thousands of travellers were left stranded in September. The BITRE data shows that more than 40% of Jetstar's departures were delayed in a month compared to 35% of Qantas and 33% of Virgin Australia. And Australia's biggest health insurer, Medibank, said it's now aware that a criminal took Medibank customer data in addition to that of AHM and international customers. It said it received specific files from the criminal but made no mention of specific ransom or blackmail demands and said the matter is under investigation by the Australian Federal Police. It said criminals have stepped up extortion demands after providing another 1,000 customers' details. The embarrassing omission comes after Medibank spent the last week and a half telling the market it was confident the issue, which involves the most sensitive health data and personal information, was contained to its cheaper AHM branded insurance and international students. The insurer said the criminals had shared another 
1,000 AHM customer files, adding to the 100 customers it confirmed on Thursday last week. Medibank has set up a 24-7 mental health support services line for any customer and support for customers who are in uniquely vulnerable positions. It has now agreed to suspend premium increases previously slated for this month until next year. And one in two gay or non-heterosexual people say they have not come out to their work colleagues, a new study has found, while more than a third of women feel marginalised at work simply due to their gender, the highest proportion in the Asia-Pacific, according to a report from Michael Page. It also found that the majority of people who identify as LGBTQIA do not feel comfortable being their authentic selves at work. Given that approximately 40% state that they work with homophobic or transphobic colleagues, one can understand why, the report said. Half of all Australians who identified as LGBTQIA in the survey said they were not out at work, while 35% said they worked with colleagues who were homophobic or transphobic. 40% of this group said they believed they would have progressed further in their career if they identified as straight, the same as Singapore. Only India and Indonesia, 49% and 48% respectively, were higher. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Martin Cregan, Managing Director, Citrix Australia New Zealand, about cyber security budgets. And I'll be talking to Rabobank economist Michael Edry about the impact of Xi Jinping's continued rule over China's economy. In the meantime, you catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 